Good morning once again. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 6. In our study in John's Gospel, we are currently looking at one of the greatest teachings Jesus ever gave during his earthly ministry, the Bread of Life Discourse, which is the uh, really the focus of chapter 6. Um, this was a teaching that resulted from the miracle that he had performed the day before when he fed 15 to 20,000 people with about with just five barley crackers and a couple of small pickled fish. And uh, what makes the Bread of Life Discourse one of the greatest in the Bible is found in its core message, which is eternal life, which Jesus mentions eight times in this discourse. Nothing is more important than eternal life. Uh, the folks he ministered to didn't realize it at the time, but he was trying to elevate their understanding of life and what it was really all about and wasn't just, you know, working and eating and things of this life. It was all about knowing God and uh, living forever. So I've divided verses 22 to 71 of uh, John 6, which is the, uh, the extent of the, of the teaching he gave. Uh, but I've, I've divided it this way. The physical preoccupation of the multitudes, the divine declaration of the Savior, the carnal condemnation of the Jewish leaders, and then the strategic separation of the true disciples from the false. Now, we are currently looking at the second main point in our outline, the, the uh, divine declaration of the Savior and really, it comes out of the first verse in this section where in verse 35, Jesus said to the multitudes, I am the bread of life. And as we've already said numerous times, this is the first of seven I am statements that John built his gospel around. The phrase I am, of course, is the name of God, first expressed by the Lord in Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. And uh, each of these Seven statements is a declaration of divinity. That's why I've talked about this as being the divine declaration of the Savior. But primarily right here, uh, you know, each of these seven I am statements is a declaration of divinity. Since they begin, each begin with Jesus declaring himself to be the great I am in human form. So under that main point, the divine declaration of the Savior, we have three Subpoints. Uh, first of all, uh, A, we saw the source of eternal life, again, verse 35. And when uh, the multitudes came to Jesus the morning after, he fed them to the full with bread, looking to be fed again. He said in verses 26 and 7, you only seek me because I fed your stomachs with physical food. Don't put so much emphasis on your physical needs when the greatest need that you have is spiritual, the need for eternal life. And he said in verse 35, I am the bread of eternal life is the idea. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. Uh, shall never hunger and thirst in their soul. Because with salvation comes the ultimate satisfaction. You're not striving anymore. You know God. God fills the emptiness. The void is filled. And the overflowing life of God begins to take over. It's an amazing thing. But once again, guys, the emphasis of the bread of life discourse is eternal life. Now, Jesus, the source of eternal life. Then in verse 36, we see the skeptics of eternal life. 
He said to them, but I say to you, you have seen me and yet not believed in me. You, you've, you've seen, I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. A biblical skeptic, guys, is a person who has the facts presented to them but can't bring themselves to accept or embrace the truth that those facts are pointing toward. There's a lot of skeptics in our society today and all, but uh, Jesus was saying to these skeptics, uh, you know, that uh, he uh, was saying to them that he had, uh, they had seen him in the sense that he had performed enough miracles in their presence for them to understand that he was the Messiah and Savior who had come down from heaven, even as God had promised, came down just like the manna came down. The whole theme is the bread of, of life which came down from heaven. And manna, of course, was a uh, literal uh, bread, but it also pointed to another kind of bread that would give eternal life. Manna fed their bodies, kept them alive in the wilderness for 40 years. The bread that Jesus is will keep a person alive for all eternity. So that brings us to our third and final uh, sub-point under our second main point, the security of eternal life. So the source of eternal life, the skeptics of eternal life, and now the security of eternal life. Verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out, for I have come down from heaven, to, uh, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have ever lasting life and i will raise him up at the last day now as we said last week as we read these verses basically to kind of close out the message and kind of set it up for this week we said that these verses contain a lot of truth a lot of truth let's break it down we won't get them all done today but okay um first of all the first part of verse 37 jesus said all that the father gives me will come to me Jesus is saying that everyone who would get saved during the church age, that's from Pentecost, Acts 2, uh, to the rapture, were foreknown and chosen by the Father who will someday, listen, present all of them as a single unit, the body of Christ, to the Son as a love gift as his bride. All the Father has given me. And the, and the context is, has given me as a love gift. My bride, they're all going to come to me, all of them. And again, notice that he makes it a point to say that all, all those that the Father gives to the Son will come to him, will come to Jesus for salvation. This means something very important. It means that no one's salvation depends on you or I. Isn't that a relief? No one's salvation depends on you or me. How many times have you shared the gospel and then on the way home said, you dummy, you should have said this. Oh, I could have brought this out. If I had just worded it right, if I had just presented it right, they would have got saved. You know what? Nobody's salvation depends on me or you, okay? Or if you chicken out all together, God, you know, the Holy Spirit is saying, go over to that person and share the gospel with them. Well, I can't do that, Lord. You know, you, just get, you chicken out all together. They're not going to go to hell because you didn't share the gospel with them. God will raise somebody else up. God, our God's big enough uh, that he's going to, you know, he'll, he'll bring somebody else. Or in some other way, it doesn't depend on you and me. Now, Jesus is clear. 
that their salvation depends, listen, solely upon the ability of the sovereign God of the universe to save, sustain them, hold on to them, and complete the work he began in each of their lives by bringing them from predestination to glorification. Romans, uh, Romans 8, 29, and 30. We'll look at those verses actually next time. It's all up to the Lord to start, finish what he started. He started the work of salvation. He started to convict and open someone's eyes and to draw them. Eventually they got saved. He's able to hold on to them, right? My father's got you in his hands and I've got you in my hands, John 10. And, you know, together you're not getting out, okay? And, uh, but he is able to see us all the way to glorification, the ultimate goal of salvation, right? Well, verse 37, the end of the verse says, And the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. First of all, Jesus is telling us that anyone can come to him for salvation. Listen, regardless of how sinful or wicked, or wicked a life that they have lived. He assures us that no, there's no one who comes to him for salvation that he's ever turned away. Nobody has come to Jesus and said, Lord, I want to receive you. He said, okay, let me check the list. Uh, no, I'm sorry, you're, you're not on the list, so too bad. It doesn't work like that, right? He said, look... Anybody can come to me, and it doesn't matter how bad a life you've lived. You come to me, and you ask me for eternal life. You believe on me, you will have it. He, he said, you'll never be turned away. Uh, you'll not be refused if you come to Jesus with a sincere heart and uh, express your faith in him. Now, at this point, some would be thinking, no doubt, but what if I'm not one of the ones the Father has chosen to be saved? What if I'm not predestined to be a part of Christ's bride? Now, there's a lot of folks, that's their thinking, okay? What if I'm not, you just said the Father chooses, or, you know, we, Jesus was chosen by the Father, right, to come. All that the Father has, has given me will come to me, right? Some say, well, what if I wasn't chosen? Well, remember John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son the world, Right? That he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in Jesus would not have to perish in hell but have everlasting life. That seems like a pretty universal invitation, right? I love what Paul said in Romans 10, verses 11 to 13. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How do you know if you're one of the chosen? Except Christ. Okay? Pretty simple. Well, well, you know, how do I know if I'm one of the chosen? Well, except Christ. And you'll know you were chosen. Well, but I don't want to accept Christ. Well, then you probably weren't chosen. What, you, what, what, what do you want from, from me, right? Look, I, I like the way somebody expressed this. They said, imagine you're walking down a long corridor, and you come to a door, and the door is marked heaven. And on the door are the words, whosoever will may enter. So you walk through the door. And as you walk through the door, you see a table that extends to infinity, put with a place you know, set up for a big feast. 
with name cards, right, on each of the place settings. And you walk down and you find your name on one of the place settings. And as you turn to see the door closed behind you, you see the words foreordained before the foundation of the world. I don't understand how God does all that he does. I just know what he tells me to do. All right? Whoever wants to may come. When I come, I learn an incredible truth. I was chosen before the foundation of the world. But secondly, so the first is that, you know, anybody who comes to Jesus will never be turned away. All are welcome to receive eternal life. But secondly, when Jesus said, the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. I believe that not only was Jesus saying that no one who comes to him for salvation will ever be turned away, that's true, but that also once they are saved, they will never be cast out of God's family and lose their salvation. And so, guys, verse 37 not only deals with the scope of salvation, anyone can be saved, but it also deals with the security of salvation. Those who are saved are never lost. And this, he goes on to state in some of the strongest terms in all the New Testament regarding the eternal security of the believer in Christ. However, however, this morning, we need to deal with the questions we raised last week as we closed out that message and set it up for today's message. We need to deal with the questions we raised last week about who and how many can be saved before we look at the subject of eternal security for those who are saved. As I just said a moment ago, the Bible says that all who would come to Jesus during the church age, listen, were chosen by the Father to be the bride of Christ. Remember what Paul said in Ephesians 1, verses 3, beginning of verse 4. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us for salvation in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. So the Bible is clear that those who wind up being saved were chosen by the Father to be saved in eternity past. That's pretty clear, right? But the question is, on the basis of what did the Father choose us? We, that he chooses those who are saved is pretty obvious. But the question then is, on the basis of what did the Father choose us? I mean, did the Father choose us because we were better, you know, more moral than other unbelievers? Um, did he choose us because we were cuter, you know, sweeter, you know? That the father looked down from heaven and said, oh, she's a teddy bear. Or he's a teddy bear. I, I, I just got to save them. Or, or was his choosing based on some other inward quality or outward attribute? You know, the Bible makes it pretty crystal clear that we were not, underline the word not, saved because, uh, based on any outward works or inward morality in our part. It's pretty clear. Some say that we were chosen by the Father based solely on his sovereign will. And the idea is that in eternity past, before God made anybody, he all knew us. He knew who we would be and how many people would, be, would live throughout the course of human history. And in eternity past, 
God the Father based solely on his sovereignty. Look at humanity and said, okay, I'm going to pick you, 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 you know, and, and, but all the rest of you, I'm going to send to hell. So I'm going to pick you for heaven, you for heaven, you for heaven, but the rest of you, you're all going to hell. I don't believe that. I don't believe I mean, The rest of you are going to hell, and you have no chance of being saved. There's no opportunity. I'm just choosing. You're going to hell, and I'm going to pick these others to go to heaven. I don't believe that. Some do. So then, on the basis of what did the Father choose those who would, who would eventually come to Christ for salvation? Now, some messages you come, and you, they're devotional. You walk out feeling kind of, you know, it's devotional, and you're feeling, you know, we all love devotional messages because they just kind of make us feel good, and the Lord loves us, and, you know, that kind of thing. That, that's wonderful. Today is a doctrinal message. Doctrine, is, you know, it's a little tougher because you have to put in your thinking cap. You've got to make yourself think, all right? You've got to be stretched a little bit. But all doctrine in the scriptures are important. So bear with me today. Uh, I had several people come up after first service and say, man, I was just dealing with this subject. I was just talking to somebody. Thanks, that helped me. Okay, all right? Some of you might be saying, what are we talking about? I just can't wait to get out of here. Uh, you know, anyways. Uh, but, but try to put on your thinking cap, Okay. Because uh, um, on the basis of what did the Father choose us? We don't really have to guess at all because Peter, in his first epistle, tells us. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. Now, Peter, after he introduces himself in verse 1 of chapter 1, and he tells, tells us who he's writing to, to the pilgrims of the dispersion. He launches right in in verse 2 when he says, he calls these pilgrims, these saved people, the elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. The elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. The word elect can also be translated chosen, which is how it is translated in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, same Greek word that Paul uses. He said, just as he chose us, could be translated, elected us, chose us for eternal life in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. So on the basis of what did God the Father choose or elect us for eternal life, it wasn't on the basis of our internal goodness or external good works. Peter tells us God chose us or elected us according to his foreknowledge. Foreknowledge is a Greek word that means knowledge known in advance. Of course, only God knows everything in advance, right? God has foreknowledge. Knowledge known in advance. God knows all things before they happen, including and especially the things that pertain to redemption we see that clearly in Revelation 13, verse 8, which tells us that before God ever made anything, he knew who we would be. He knew who would be born and so on. And so he knew that the human race would blow it. And so uh, Revelation 13, 8 says that Jesus Christ was a lamb slain before the foundation of the world. In other words, before God ever made anything, he knew us. He has foreknowledge. 
He knew we would blow it. In the mind of God already, before we were ever made, he saw Jesus hanging on Calvary's cross, redeeming us. The Greek word for foreknowledge is um, prognostin, prognostin, uh, and uh, it's where we get our word prognostication from. And it means the action of foretelling or prophesying future events. So prognosin is actually how it's pronounced. Prognosin, foreknowledge, means the action of foretelling or prophesying future events. Now, those who are Calvinists, let me just say this, okay? Um, some of my favorite writers are Calvinists, okay? I got some people who I'm very close to who are Calvinists. Calvinists love the Lord. I'm not, I'm not putting down Calvinists. I'm disagreeing with Calvinism, okay? I mean, a lot of Calvinists are godly, wonderful people who love the Lord and have made contributions to the church throughout the centuries that we could never thank them enough for, okay? So please, I'm not anti-Calvinist. I'm just, I have a disagreement with Calvinism, okay? So that's where I'm coming from, all right? Don't, don't go home and say, boy, did Phil blast those Calvinists. Boy, I'm glad he got that. I have nothing with, against Calvinists. I just don't agree with everything they believe and teach, okay? But a lot, of, uh, a lot of Calvinists says the Greek word actually means, listen, foreordination. In other words, God knows the future because he has foreordained the future. Or put it another way, he knows the future because he has predetermined the future, including all those who would be saved. The only way God knows the future is because he has already determined what he's going to do in the future. You see, it wasn't that God just knew in advance for knowledge those who would get saved and those who wouldn't. Calvinists believe Calvinist believes that he predestined or predetermined those, some to be saved and others to be damned. Now, because of this idea, a lot of people have a problem with the whole idea of predestination, okay? And um, that's unfortunate because it's biblical. The whole idea of predestination is taught in the Bible. It's biblical. Go back to Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5, where Paul says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Listen, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. So predestination is biblical, the idea. It troubles a lot of people because a lot of people don't really understand what it really is. They uh, go to churches that teach something vastly different than what predestination really is all about. And that's why it troubles them, because they don't really understand it. The word predestination comes from a Greek word that means to predetermine or plan beforehand a person's destiny. That's what it means. The word means to predetermine or plan beforehand a person's destiny. Now, that's the strict definition of predestination. It's not hard to understand. The problem comes when you try to figure out upon what basis did God predetermine someone's destiny. Was it based solely upon his sovereignty or upon our free will? Calvinists believe that in eternity past, God chose some to be predestined to eternal life in heaven 
and the others he predestined to spend eternity in hell. It's called the doctrine of reprobation. Uh, that God, you know, he has predetermined some, predestined some to go to heaven. Uh, that's, you know, that's a good predestination if you're one of those. Uh, but they also believe he predestined the rest to spend eternity in hell, the doctrine of reprobation. And all of this was decided, they, they say, before any of us were born, without any of us deciding or choosing, because we don't have choice, they believe. Uh, we're so dead in trespasses and sins, we can't make any decisions spiritually for ourselves uh, to receive Christ and so on. So this was all decided, whether you spend eternity in heaven or eternity in hell, was all decided before you were ever born, without, without any free will or choice on your part, where you would spend eternity. In other words, we're nothing but puppets. I don't know if Calvinists acknowledge this, I can't see how they get around it, but basically Calvinism teaches that we're nothing but puppets in God, is the, uh, is the puppet master who makes us behave in certain ways and uh, believe or not believe what he has determined, and we have no choice in the matter. In fact, Calvinists have such a strong, uh, extreme view of God's sovereignty and man's depravity that they don't believe unbelievers even have the capacity to believe on their own. They believe God has to give them the faith to believe if they're going to be saved. Now, turn to Ephesians 2. So when you're talking to Calvinists, understand. They believe that fallen man is dead in trespasses and sins. Dead men can't believe. Okay? Which sounds logical, right? Ephesians 2, we're dead in trespasses and sins. Dead people can't believe. That proves that we, we can't have the faith. God's got to give us the faith. Well, dead people can't sin either. Just to throw that out. Okay? But they would never say, unbelievers, dead in trespasses and sins, never sin. You, you can take, that sounds good, and I've heard them use it on certain people, and it really tripped them up. Well, yeah, we're dead in trespasses and sins. How could dead people believe? Corpses can't believe, they say. Well, corpses can't sin either, all right? You know, that, that, their idea of deadness, the Bible doesn't say, is accurate. Uh, you know, being dead in trespasses and sins doesn't mean we were annihilated. It just means we were alienated. We still had enough in us to choose right from wrong or God from the devil, okay? Eternal life from non-eternal life, right? But um, they, they love to go to Ephesians 2, 8, 9 because it, it supports their claims that we are so dead in trespasses and sins we, we don't have the capacity to believe as unbelievers, right? And uh, Paul said in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Now Calvinists interpreted Ephesians 2, 8, 9 to mean the gift Paul is referring to here is not salvation but the faith needed to believe in Christ for salvation. And that the faith to believe is not something any of us as fallen sinners can uh, possess on our own, but is something that can only come from God as a gift. So you can't even, before you got saved, you couldn't even believe in Christ. For you to get saved, God had to zap you with the faith to believe. 
And if that's true, and nobody, not everybody gets saved in the world, which is obvious, then God's only zapping a few and leaving the others to fend for themselves. Okay, it's called election, how they define it, okay? Here's, here's what they reason. If we had free will and could choose on our own to believe in Jesus, that would be a work, they say. And we can't get saved by our works. Okay, I agree with that last part. God only saves us by his grace apart from any works we could try to do to earn salvation. I totally, I totally agree with that. However, I have a problem with the first part of that argument. That places believing or the exercising of faith into the category of works, which it is clearly not. Turn to Romans 4. And Paul's going to use this very logic against the Jewish people to enlighten them. Because they were always talking about Abraham. Abraham was, of course, one of their, their, their top guy. You know, Moses and Abraham, right? But Abraham, father Abraham, okay? And here, you read the book of Romans carefully, Paul is making the case that Abraham wasn't righteous because of what he did, not even his birth, or that he was circumcised. If you read Romans carefully, Abraham was saved 14 years before he was ever circumcised. Genesis 15, verse 6, Abraham believed God. It was accounted to him for righteousness. That's Paul's whole point. The Jews thought you have to, to get saved, you have to believe and do a lot of good works. Get circumcised, keep the Sabbath, blah, 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 that kind of thing. Paul says, don't you understand Abraham, your father, right? The one you look up to. He was saved, justified, made righteous, saved 14 years before he ever was circumcised. Paul says in verse 2, for if Abraham was justified by works, he'd have something to boast about, but he wasn't. Verse 3, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Again, he's quoting Genesis 15, 6. Now to him who works, tries to earn their salvation by their works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who, who justified the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Paul is making a very uh, simple but powerful point. Okay. You work all week, you work hard at your job. Comes Friday, your boss hands you your check and says, here's a gift. What do you say? A gift? I work for that. That's my wage, right? Paul is saying salvation is a gift. How can it be a gift if you have to work for it? Abraham didn't work for it. He believed God. Salvation is a gift of grace. If you try to say we have to work for it, it's no longer a gift. You earn that then, which we don't. But I want you to notice Paul separates in Romans 4 faith from works and doesn't include it in the category of works. He's saying either we get saved by works or we get saved by faith. He's not saying faith is a work. It's mutually exclusive, right? Let's think about this for a moment. How can simply receiving God's gift of salvation by our faith be considered a work? I mean, since when is receiving a gift a meritorious act? Well, let me illustrate. Say that I am destitute. I'm, I'm, I'm poor, very poor, and I'm also sick. I need an operation soon or I'm going to die. But I don't have money for an operation. 
So I'm doomed. And then one day a wealthy man hears of my plight and hands me a check that's enough to cover the whole thing. In a very real sense, he is offering me salvation from death by giving me a gift of life. Now, is my reaching out and receiving the check a meritorious act? Will people applaud the one who receives the check or the one by his grace who gives the check? I, mean, I disagree with Calvinists who believe that receiving by faith, our faith, God's gracious gift of eternal life through our free will, is a meritorious act and somehow, therefore, negates God's grace and turns faith into a work. And furthermore, if God had to give a person the faith to believe and then forced them to come to Christ to be saved, it's called the Calvinist doctrine of irresistible grace, that would make all of the invitations in the New Testament nothing more than hypocrisy. Think about it. Hypocrisy in the sense that it gives the appearance that God is letting us choose, right? Whether or not we're going to receive Jesus and be saved, when in reality he isn't inviting people to come and be saved, implying, you know, we have free will to accept or reject his offer. He's not inviting, he's dragging people. He's dragging them irresistibly and forcing them to be saved. Doesn't an invitation imply free will? Doesn't it? If I said to you, look, I'd like to invite you over to my house for dinner Friday night, okay? I, I'm, what I'm saying is you can choose to accept or decline. It's, it's up to you. I'm asking you, I'm giving you an invitation, but whether you accept it or reject it is up to you. Now, what if I said, I'd like to invite you over to my house uh, Friday for dinner, and then I send three big guys over to your house and drag you out of your house all the way to my house, sit you down at the table, and I say, hey, thanks for accepting my invitation. Yeah, maybe in Chicago that works. <laughs> I mean, you can't have it both ways. You can't, you can't be a Calvinist and say, well, I believe that, uh, you know, that uh, all the invitations in the Bible. But that implies free will. And if you don't believe in free will but you believe that people were chosen before the foundation of the world to be saved, and they had no part in it, and God's going to drag them into the kingdom eventually, how is that invitation an honest and sincere invitation? And yet, guys, the New Testament contains many invitations for sinners that come to Christ for salvation. Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. That's a great invitation, right? At the end of the book of Revelation, chapter 22, verse 17, Jesus said, let him, let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him or her come and take the water of life freely. Using the imagery of John 4, right? Living water, Christ. It's an invitation. You can accept it or you can reject it. But if it's an invitation, an honest invitation, it doesn't involve God dragging you or doing anything against your will, right? Now look, with regard to the doctrine of reprobation, not all Calvinists hold to it. They try to get around it, okay? Moderate Calvinists teach that although God did elect and predestine some for eternal life in heaven, that doesn't mean he predestined others to eternal damnation in hell. 
But guys, this is simply, again, trying to get around the obvious implications of Calvinist theology. Whether you believe that God purposely reprobates somebody to hell, or whether he just withholds from them the faith to be saved, it's really the same thing, right? I mean, if God had said to us, to be saved, you had to fly, okay? That was the, that was the condition for salvation. To be saved, you had to fly. But then only gave a select few, called the elect, wings to fly, and kept wings from the others, that would be the same as reprobating them to hell, right? I mean, you know, I've heard Calvinists use that illustration, not, not the, the wings, that's mine, but, uh, but, but they would say something to the effect, yes, but God isn't telling them not to fly, okay? Uh, so it's their fault uh, for not flying, not being saved, not God's fault. And I've heard Calvinists use this logic with God giving some the faith to believe while withholding saving faith from the non-elect, when you point it out, they go, well, God's not telling them they can't believe. Just, you know, they can, they can believe if they want to. Well, no, they can't. Because you believe and teach that they have to be given the faith by God. So this idea that you can be a moderate Calvinist and believe that God predestined some for heaven, but not really has reprobated others to hell. That, that's dis, that, that is so disingenuous, it's hard, to even, it's hard to even take it seriously, that, that argument. And besides, if God can force the elect to be saved, irresistible grace, then why not just force everyone to be saved? Think about that. If your Calvinism is true, and you believe that God forces the elect to be saved, then why not? Why didn't God just elect everybody and force all mankind to be saved? How can God, who is all love, only save a few when he could save all? I mean, how does that even harmonize with the nature of an all-loving God? Let me illustrate this way. Say you're driving down a country road on a hot summer's day. As you're driving down this dusty road, you see a pond. And you see five boys in the pond splashing around, and you think, oh, it's a good day for a swim. You look again and notice, no, these boys aren't swimming. They're drowning. So you quickly pull the car over, run over to the pond. Now, you could save all five, but you choose to save only one. Do you think people will call you a hero or a heartless villain? I mean, you could save all five, but you chose, oh, I'm under no obligation to save anybody. I can choose to save one if I want. But yeah, but that would make you a hero. It would make you a heartless villain. Calvinism turns God into a heartless villain. Think about that. It turns God into a heartless villain because, but the Calvinist responds, but God is under no obligation to save anyone. The fact that he just saved one out of the five shows that he is, you know, a wonderful God. I don't see it that way. I don't see it that way. I mean, if God's forcing people to be saved, and he could save all the people on the planet, and he chooses to save a small group called the elect, I don't see that as an all-loving God. But God's under no obligation to save anybody, the Calvinist says. That's not the point. Of course, God is under no obligation to do anything for any of us, including and especially to save any of us. But listen, 
If he chooses by force to save sinners at all, he must choose to save all sinners. Or else he can't be an all-loving God. All right, let's wind it down. At this point, someone said, well, Phil, what's your definition? How do you explain predestination? Well, again, Peter said that we were elected through the foreknowledge of God. I explain it this way, that God in eternity past looked down into the future through his foreknowledge, and he knew everybody who, through his grace, would respond in faith to, the, to his offer of salvation when the gospel was presented to them. Maybe not the first try, of course. Maybe not the first time they heard the gospel. But God looking down into the future, knowing all of us, who we would be, and knowing how, what people would eventually receive the gospel and, be, and accept Christ, and those that wouldn't. And therefore, based on his foreknowledge, he elected or chose us to be his children and predetermined our destiny that we would spend eternity with him in heaven. Predestination, guys, only applies to heaven and to those who receive Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. Nowhere in Scripture are we taught that God predestines anyone to hell. Nowhere. If a person winds up going to hell, it's because, listen, they refused God's invitation for salvation and rejected Christ as their Savior. That's why they go to hell pure and simple. Now, our Calvinist brothers and sisters would immediately jump all over that idea by saying that if God chose us based on us choosing Jesus, then, uh, then that would make God a responder and not the initiator of salvation. This, they say, would violate what Jesus himself clearly said on the subject in John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And I totally agree with that. Totally agree with that. God is the initiator, initiator of salvation. The Father, through the Holy Spirit, draws sinner to Christ, sinners to Christ. If he didn't, fallen sinners would never on their own go looking for God or salvation. He has to draw us. Paul made that very clear in Romans 3. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is no one who seeks after God. But the difference between Calvinists and non-Calvinists like me is that the Calvinist claims that God only draws the elect to Christ, whereas I believe, as Jesus said in John 12, 32, if I am lifted up from the earth, on the cross was the idea, I will draw all men and women to myself. They believe God only draws the elect. I believe Jesus draws through the Holy Spirit the entire world to him. Now listen, just because God draws a person to Jesus through the ministry of the Holy Spirit doesn't mean that they have to be saved. Calvinists say they do. It's irresistible grace. I think the Bible is clear. That just because God draws someone to Christ, they don't have to be saved. They can resist God's grace if they choose to. Look, God is calling and drawing all men and women to be saved. But his grace and mercy to be saved isn't forced on anyone and can be resisted and ultimately rejected. I'll give you two scriptures to look up on your own this week. Matthew 23, verse 37. Acts 7, verse 51. 
And there's other places that clearly talk about how man can resist the Holy Spirit. Calvinists claim no. The Bible says yes, because we have a free will. People can, resi can resist and reject God's offer of salvation. God, however, being omniscient and possessing foreknowledge, knew those who would believe the gospel and receive Christ. In fact, he knew them in eternity past, chose them to be his children, and predestined them, in other words, predetermined their, their destiny, that they were to spend eternity with him in heaven. He, he did that because of his foreknowledge. Now listen, that doesn't mean he withholds the ability or the opportunity to be saved from anyone. He gives all a fair chance to receive Jesus and eternal life by their faith, not by some faith that he has to zap them with. Even fallen man has still got enough free will. I mean, the flesh is dominant and really influences how unbelievers live but not to the point where they have no ability to receive Christ of their own free will. Look, he calls all to be saved. But only those he knew would accept his invitation did he choose to be his children. He's calling the whole world. If I be lifted up, I will call all men, all women to myself. He calls everyone to come and be saved. 1 John 2, 1, Jesus Christ died. He was the propitiation not only for our sins, the uh, saved, but for the sins of the whole world, all unbelievers. He calls everyone for salvation to be saved. He chooses those to be his kids who he knows would accept that invitation. Remember, you say, you, do you have a scripture uh, to support that? Yeah, Matthew 22, verse 14. Many are called, what? you are chosen. But once again, let's be crystal clear on this point. Just because God chose some for heaven, the Bible never teaches that he chose others for hell. The only people, and we're done, the only people that wind up going to hell are the rebels who refuse to accept God's invitation to be saved. There are folks on this planet who would rather sin now, and I guess be separated from God for eternity, than to bow the knee to Jesus Christ now, confess their sins, and say, Lord Jesus, will you come into my heart, take control, be my king. I want to turn my life over to you now to be lived for your glory. Those that do that are saved. And they go on to be children of God in, his, in heaven for eternity. Those who reject the Lord's offer go to hell. When Jesus has done and the Father and Spirit have done everything they can do short of forcing them to be saved, they have done every. Jesus did all the work. Father drew them. The Spirit, uh, he uh, seals those who are saved until the day of redemption, full glorification. What more could God do short of forcing somebody to be saved, which he won't do? If a person winds up in hell, they'll have nobody to blame but themselves. And I personally think that is part of the agony they will suffer for eternity, as they are every moment of every day, no day really, but every moment of eternity, they will be thinking, why did I not just accept Christ? Why was I so hard-hearted? Why was I such a rebel? 
I didn't have to be here. I could have been in heaven rejoicing. That's going to be part of the horror of hell, I'm convinced. So we will continue next week, God willing. And as we keep working our way through John 6, one of the greatest teachings in the entire Bible. So we'll uh, continue on next time. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that as your spirit leads us into all truth in your word, it teaches us, it, it enlightens us, uh, it grows us, Lord. We need to have a proper uh, concept of you, salvation, and so on. Lord, continue to bless these studies in your word for your glory and for our personal edification. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.